If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The royal librarian once said that the Hanoverian dynasty are like pigs. They trample on their young. And it is true that in some sense she trampled on her young. She had these nine children and she did come to use some of them, particularly the younger ones, as emotional props, as emotional crutches, as people whose lives she expected to be entirely devoted to her comfort and convenience. That was Lucy Worsley talking about Queen Victoria. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. With the success of the ITV drama series, and to upcoming bicentenary. Queen Victoria is very much a woman of the moment. And her story has now been revisited in a new biography by Lucy Worsley, the historian, author and broadcaster, who is also chief curator of historic royal palaces. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, met up with Lucy at Kensington Palace, Victoria's childhood home, to find out more about her remarkable life. So we've come up the stairs uh, that Victoria went down uh, the morning that she became queen and we're now sitting in what was her bedroom. We are. um, Which is very exciting. Um, So perhaps that might be a good place to start, perhaps that that morning that she sort of, you know, became queen and sort of, you know, her girlhood was was over really. It's it's such a satisfying moment in her life story. And I know know this is only in my mind and it's only emotional, but I feel... Something special about sitting in the room where she woke up when she was aged 18 and three weeks. And this was key timing because she just passed her 18th birthday. So there was no need for there to be a regency that would have been the case otherwise. She was woken up. She was told that visitors had come to the palace and she went out of this room and next door and she met them. And there, kneeling on the carpet with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chamberlain and they were kissing her hand and they were telling her, that her uncle, the king, had died in the night. And although she hadn't known it, for the last five hours, she had been the queen. (laughs) And she was still sharing the room with her mother. mother. Yes, yes, because she always had to sleep in her mother's room uh, because of this sort of strange, slightly controlling way in which she was brought up here at Kensington Palace. So at some point, lying just there in her bed, in her sleep, she went through this transformation in her life. Yeah. 
And she she remembers that that morning quite differently from her her mother. Yes, um, this is very it's very interesting. A lot of books about um, Queen Victoria describe her mother as a baddie, mm. somebody who was harsh and cruel and unsympathetic, and that's because her mother was complicit in this this thing called the Kensington system, that was a curious form of royal child-rearing that had several purposes. She was kept quite isolated here, and the purposes were to protect her from assassinations. It also had a PR purpose. It was to distance her from the unpopular regime of her uncles, George IV, William IV. But thirdly, it was about mental surveillance and control. Because if there was a Regency situation, then people wanted to be the power behind the throne. And what really changed my mind about Victoria's mother is reading her journal, which there's a uh, a near contemporary copy of in the Royal Archives. And I read that and it's it's so loving. So on the morning that Victoria wakes up as queen, she sort of casts her mother off. She says, I don't need you anymore, mum. Storms out of the room, gets on with her queening by herself. But her mother that morning says things like, if only my girl realised how much I love her and how much I'm on her side. And somebody who knew her said of Victoria's mother uh, <laughs> that her kindness and softness are very delightful despite her want of brains. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. so I think she was a woman with a difficult job and yeah. a loving woman as well. I mean, that's something I've always, I've always sort of thought as well, that she was quite a distant mother. But reading your book, it seems that actually Victoria was doted on by her parents when she was a baby, when she was born. And, and growing up, there was a lot, seemed to be a lot of love from her parents um, and her mother. And it seems to be Victoria keeping her at arm's length a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people um, who perhaps have gone through their teenage years as girls have had similar kind of dynamics with their with their mm. <laughs> with, with their mothers in particular, perhaps. But I think she was a particularly obstreperous teenager, and I do feel for Victoria's mother because she was German. She married into the British royal family very much for reasons of pragmatism and the bloodline. She couldn't speak English. And then when Victoria's father died, when Victoria was a baby, this poor woman was sort of left stranded. And the main part of the royal family didn't want to know. Everybody sort of wanted her to go off quietly back to Germany, but she stuck around for the sake of her daughter. And because she didn't have... Oh, because she didn't have enough confidence in herself, she rather fell into the clutches of the villain in the story of Queen Victoria, a chap called John Conroy, who set up this thing called the Kensington System. And was he really the baddie? Is that the <laughs> He's usually painted as the baddie and he did do many bad things. He was particularly controlling of Victoria and, and wanted to sort of worm his way in to being the power behind her phone. The two things that I would say in defence of Conroy that aren't always brought out are, firstly, he, he was very good at his job. If you think that the purpose of the system was to allow her to emerge as a fresh start for the monarchy... He did that brilliantly. He stage-managed her childhood and the public appearances that she made so that really she got a, a, a dream start to her queenship. And the other reason I feel slightly sorry for Conroy sometimes is that he was a self-made man. Mm. He, he wasn't an aristocrat. And that's why the court establishment, I think, uh, disliked him for his ambition. And he wanted to be rewarded with a peerage because that was the rules of the game, you know. That's, that's, that would have marked his success in life. But you can see him as a man with a job who did it quite well. 
her upbringing, what, how different was it to sort of, you know, another heir perhaps to the throne? You mentioned the Kensington, Kensington system. You know, how different was that to how a, a you know a normal princess would have would have lived? It was it was definitely odd, and part of the oddness stems from her father's will when he died when she was a baby, and I think that he and Victoria's mother, as you've already said, truly loved each other. And that is unusual. Royal people didn't usually have the luxury of falling in love with each other. It was something, wasn't something that they could afford to do. But I do see both of them as being quite romantic people. And in his will, he unusually left the guardianship of his daughter to the mother, because clearly he loved and trusted her. And normally the guardianship of the heir to the throne would have gone to the present incumbent. And you see this in the 18th century. Sometimes kings take away their grandchildren from the control of their actual parents because they want to bring them up according to what they think is the right royal way to do it. So Victoria was not, she didn't come out of the royal factory. She had quite a different experience of early life that involves a lot of love and affection, but also quite a strange amount of weird pressure on her. Yeah, but like you say, that that kind of did distance her from the kind of perceived corruption of, you know, William and, you know, he they were he wasn't a particularly popular king, was he? No, no. Um, and I, th- I think that the circumstances of being in this very intense uh, family environment um, perhaps caused her to be emotionally strong and emotionally literate mm. in a way that would actually turn out to be just what the monarchy required in the 19th century. Because... Monarchs no longer had absolute power. They, no, they, they were no longer able to tell people what to do. But what they did still have as constitutional monarchs was influence. Mm. And I believe that Victoria emerged from her upbringing with the ability to express warmth and emotion and to make people feel that she cared. Even her gender was quite useful for the monarchy in the 19th century because all over Europe, other monarchies were having revolutions carried out against them. And... These revolutions were successful when middle-class people joined up with working-class people. But in Britain, Victoria just seemed to have sort of hotline to the middle classes. She could do and say things that made them feel like she was one of them. She was on their side. She wasn't worth overthrowing. I mean, it must have been pretty scary coming from the the Kensington bubble. I mean, she did meet the public a few times when she Mm. was a child. Mm. Um, Scary, but also liberating to suddenly become queen and know that she was sort of the shackles had... Had gone, and she was able to. You know, how does she? How does she respond to that? Brilliantly, this is one of the the attractive things about her. Even though she's had quite a sheltered childhood, you can see that she loves being queen. Mm. <laughs> it's like the duckling becomes the swan. <laughs> yeah. She emerges at her first public appearance, which was a privy council meeting here at Kensington Palace. The Duke of Wellington said she not only filled her chair, she filled the room. So she's a big personality even at that young age then. Big personality and a very small body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was. And she makes quite a lot about how short she was throughout her life, really, wasn't it? It was, it was a bit of a, you know, she wasn't very happy with her height. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a bit of a theme. There are suggestions that she herself was, was anxious about how short she was, wanted to be taller. And her, when her height was announced in public, a tiny little bit was always added yes. on in the, the official version. But people who met her often said she's a bit short. She looks quite ordinary. But they always commented, well, many of them commented on her excellent figure. Mm. And one American gentleman said that her bust, like that of most English women, is very good. (laughs) She, I mean, Annie Gray has said this as well. Um, She had quite sort of dysfunctional periods of eating, didn't she? Yes. Um, Do you think that was a, a way of kind of getting 
attention from her her mother and or from other people you know was she showing signs of that as a child? This question of her possible disordered eating is so interesting. And it's such a preoccupation at the late 20th and early 21st centuries as well. I think it's really interesting that historians are intrigued by this area and drill into it and actually in quite a gendered way. I'm not sure that we would do this in the case of a male monarch at all. So having sort of said, ah, it's a bit of a bore that we have to do this, to go into it, yes, you can absolutely see evidence that she is controlling her diet as a way of getting at these women who seem to have such control over her over her life, her mother, perhaps her governess, Leitzen, as well. Her sister seems to take a view on what she's eating. And it's, it's a very sort of classic form of teenage reaction to pressure, isn't it? Yeah. Did that continue after, you know, she became queen and, and, you know, had a bit more freedom? Well, that's a question that really intrigues us here at Kensington Palace, not least because uh, one of the things that we look after is the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection. And that contains a lot of items from Queen Victoria's wardrobe. And there is a sort of conventional narrative of her life, which was that um, she was skinny, Albert died, she got fat mm. out of depression and comfort eating and all that sort of thing. And it's very easy to fat shame her in later life because uh, she does become rather rotund. So we decided to drill down into this a bit more by measuring all of her surviving wardrobe clothes. And we were able to sort of chart that her weight gain was was much more gradual whole, uh, across her whole life. And that was important to us because we wanted to present Albert's death as not this key hinge. We, 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 we get annoyed by this idea that Albert was so central to her life that before it, she was fine. After it, she wasn't. She was having normal, normal weight gain. And also another reason I feel that she dressed loosely in later life, very loose, comfortable clothes, was because of something that her doctor saw after she was dead which was his first sight of her stomach. He'd never been allowed to see her undressed before. And her doctor noticed that she had, and had had for the last 40 years, a very painful condition called an umbilical hernia, a stomach hernia. So that's connected to childbirth. Yeah. And if you had a, a bad stomach, then you certainly wouldn't want to be wearing a corset. And perhaps that's the reason that she appears a little round. Moving on to Albert, there's a, you know, in her diaries, there's a lot about her meeting with Albert and, and Albert does, is kind of a central theme in them. The, the first meeting, you sort of tend to get a bit more from her as to how she felt Albert didn't seem quite as keen. Mm. Um, is that fair to say, do you think? Or was he just well, sort of waiting? And <laughs> I feel such a spoil sport in talking <laughs> about their relationship because everybody wants to believe that this is one of history's great love matches. Um, but I think that is a lot to do with how to the Victorians family life, marriage, domesticity were considered to be the highest achievements of the age. So I think there was huge pressure on them to present their family life and marriage as utterly perfect in every way, as a model for the nation to follow. It was a way of, it was a way of carrying out the duties of a monarch, if you like. And this was totally an arranged match and not one that went particularly well in a lot of different ways. If you look at the, the account of their first meeting in her diary, for example, which took place here at Kensington Palace when they were both 16, uh, <laughs> the diary entry that she wrote that night says, oh, I played the piano, I read scripture, I walked in the garden, my German cousin Albert came for a visit. And then there's quite a long passage which describes this gift that the visiting German relatives gave her, the gift of a parrot. <laughs> so if she fell in love with anybody that day, it was definitely with the parrot and not with Albert. 
Yeah, and she seemed quite keen on Ernest as well. Ernest seemed to kind of, you know, he seemed a bit more engaging. And was that a possible match? Ernest was a real ladies' man. He had all sorts of charm and a sort of sex appeal to him. He wasn't a possible match. And the reason is because he was the, they, they were the sons of the Duke of Coburg. And Ernest, as the eldest son, had to stay in Coburg to be the next Duke of Coburg. So they had the heir and the spare. The heir has to stay there. Albert is the spare and can be sent out as an agent of Coburg to marry into the British royal family to extend the Coburg family's influence. And this is repeating a pattern of entirely the previous generation where Victoria's uncle Leopold had been sent to marry Princess Charlotte of Great Britain, who'd unfortunately died. So um, points, uh, Coburg didn't win that uh, (laughs) interaction, if you like, but then they did win the second one when their boy got the hand of the Queen. And the match was favoured by Victoria's mother and sort of close family members. Um, How did Parliament and the wider royal family feel about this man from Coburg, a relatively small place, you know, didn't have a lot of money, nothing much to bring to to the throne? Coburg was small and the historian A.N. Wilson has pointed out that historians have a nasty habit of ritually denigrating it by comparing it to English counties. So you'll read that Coburg, oh, it was the only, only the size of uh, Dorset. Coburg, it only had as many people living in it as Leicester. And that is part of a long tra- tradition of denigrating Coburg. <laughs> Amongst the German states, it, it actually had a really liberal, forward-thinking reputation. Um, people responded to the match by being pleased. They felt that she ought to be married. She should be married. And here was a bloke who could do the job. But then oh, there was a bit of sort of... Uh, ritual humiliation by the British to a German, which you can see throughout the whole of the 18th century as well with our German kings and queens. They, they get a bit of a bad time. And here, this, it was heightened by the gender being the wrong way round. Um, he, he, <laughs> Albert performs the role of a princess, really, doesn't he? He's exported by his family. Uh, he's, he's chosen because of his beautiful body, his ability to father children. And he comes to be the, the consort of a woman who's in charge it would have been kind of easier for everybody if the roles had been the other way around and if Albert had been the girl and she had been the boy. Yeah, and he very much felt that, didn't he? He did. I could see that he was in quite a tricky position there because he was sort of psychologically... There was, there was cognitive dissonance here. He was supposed to. Society expected him to be the master of the household, but clearly he wasn't. But I think over the course of the marriage, we can see Albert scheming and taking steps to get himself into that position of dominance, which he was brought up to assume that he should have. And Victoria sort of agreed with that, didn't she? On one hand, she kind of wanted to be that little wife and to give him that. But on the other hand, she must have been in kind of a bit of turmoil as to her role as queen and her role as a wife. And how does she kind of get over that? This is the one... This. This is one of the things that really intrigues me about Victoria, how she was not only the queen, but she was a Victorian woman. Mm. And the rules of how to be a Victorian woman... They applied to her too. And you can see her grappling sometimes with this expectation that she's, she is the empress of a quarter of the people living on the globe. And at the same time, she's supposed to be quiet and good and modest and self-effacing and loyal, subservient and all the things that Victorian wives are supposed to be. And I do think actually she had, a, in some ways, she had a more difficult challenge ruling as a woman in the 19th century than monarchs did in previous centuries as females, Elizabeth I, for example. And the reason I think that is because of the Industrial Revolution. 
So in the 18th century family, in an agricultural economy, it's likely that all members of a family unit would have worked, would have earned money. So that's the wife and the children as well. But when we get to the 19th century, a man could hope to earn enough money in a factory or in business to keep his wife at home. So that became a marker of gentility. And that she was a woman as well as the queen. This also applied to Queen Victoria. Um, she had to... She had to stay at home and be a wife, in a sense, as well. But the flip side of that is that, you know, it was just what the age required. People were quite happy with her performing that role. In fact, they expected her to perform that role, and she did it brilliantly. Mm. And I suppose having children helped, perhaps helped matters a little bit, because obviously she was out of, the, out of action for a little bit, um, which did allow Albert perhaps to take a little bit more on. I think so. I think so. I, you know, you, you could well defend Albert by saying, well, he was a polymath. He was clever. He supported art and technology and he organised the Great Exhibition. Yeah, all true. But I don't think he should have been doing those things. I think he should have supporting his wife in her role as queen. And clearly he did not do that. And clearly having all of these children caused her psychological problems. And if you look at her doctor's notes, you can see the record of symptoms that today might well get you diagnosed with postnatal depression. I'm choosing my words carefully here because you can't just no. say um, a person in the 19th century had a very 21st century illness, but you can see that she was experiencing lowness and tearfulness and visual disturbances. For example, she would look at people's faces and they would turn to worms before her eyes and she saw coffins, coffins floating through the air. So quite, quite distressing mm. stuff for her. And after seven children, she said to another doctor, Dr. Clark, she said, I can't have any more. I will sink under it. But it seems to me that Albert kept the babies coming because he liked her having in this subordinate, uh, helpless state to some extent and perhaps not even consciously, but it worked for him. Yeah. And the fact was, she, she didn't like being a mother, did she? She didn't really like children that much. I mean, she loved them, <laughs> probably. But well, this is, this is, this is, this is a, an area of hot debate, really. Um, it is traditional to say that she was a bad mother and didn't like children. And there's loads of fantastic and sometimes quite amusing statements that you can find in her, <laughs> in her correspondence supporting this. For example, she said that an ugly baby is a very frightful thing. And even a pretty one is pretty awful when it's undressed. Um, it's easy to sort of laugh at her for that. But it is true that when female historians more recently have, have re-examined this issue, there are clearly moments of joy mm. and delight and happiness and pride in her children. And partly this has arisen historiographically uh, because when her correspondence was first edited and published, it was done by two men. And they, they, were, they were not interested in the womanly, childly, servanty, dress-related bits of her life story. So they kind of missed them out in the published correspondence. And uh, very famously, when her daughter Vicky, her first child, is born in 1840, in the first edition of her published correspondence, this fact is only mentioned in a footnote several pages chronologically after it had happened. Uh, so you can see what their priorities were. And this has contributed to the idea that she didn't like children, which is not entirely true. She had a mixed, you know, this is, mothers all have their good moments and their bad moments, don't they? They all, they all struggle. There's no such thing as a, as a good mother or a bad mother. Everywhere is, everyone is somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And it's quite telling that when Albert did die, the, it was the first thing she went, she went up to the, the youngest child's bed, didn't she? 
so it was, she wanted to be with her children. Do you think that's, I mean, that's, that seems symbolic to me that she did care? Well, or was it just something yeah, yeah, to hide? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's such an interesting question to me. Um, the royal librarian once said that the Hanoverian dynasty are like pigs. They trample on their young. And it is true that in some sense she trampled on her young. She had these nine children and she did come to use some of them, particularly the younger ones, as emotional props, as emotional crutches, as people whose lives she expected to be entirely devoted to her comfort and convenience. After Albert's died, died, there's this long-standing myth that she went and she she took her baby Beatrice out of bed and sort of cuddled her Mm -hmm. in order to make herself feel better. And the myth is elaborated by the fact that she perhaps wrapped Beatrice in dead Albert's nightshirt to create a sort of weird bond. And the the historian who's looked into this most thoroughly is is Matthew Dennison. He can't find actually any contemporary reference for this to have happened. But it it makes psychological sense that uh, she, she had loved and relied upon Albert. All of that gets transferred to particularly Beatrice, her youngest daughter, whose life you can see being slightly blighted by this job of becoming her mother's unpaid, sometimes unrecognised personal assistant, maidservant, all-round proper-upper. Yeah, because she was furious when she wanted to get married. This is, she, a, this uh... is a huge calamity. <laughs> how, dare Be- how dare Beatrice think that she could possibly get married? <laughs> Which is partly selfishness on Queen Victoria's part, but also, to give her credit... This is what you were expected to do as the youngest daughter in a family. It was kind of your job to devote yourself as a spinster to the, mm. the, the well-being and old age of your parents. This is the job that Jane Austen performs in her family, for example, and it's a well-known role that women were expected to occupy. You still feel sorry for Beatrice, though. <laughs> yes. Um, we've sort of briefly spoken about um, Albert's death and how it's most people sort of think that's the turning point and they imagine her then, that's kind of her life over almost. You know, she wears black and goes into mourning. You're sort of saying that actually she sort of came out of that. Is that right? And although she did mourn Albert for the rest of her life, she did have a life after Albert. Yes, and I think that I'm not alone in thinking this. I think this is what a lot of historians are now looking for and finding now that Albert is not considered to be the king in all but name who who dominates the history of the 19th century. You can see shoots of recovery, growing, returning confidence in herself. For example, after she died, she said, when the prince consort was alive, he fought for me. Now I have to think for myself. And you can see her making political interventions that that are the most powerful of her reign take place um, towards the end. And another thing that's often said is that she failed in her duties during the mourning period by retiring from public life, becoming a recluse, as it were. And again, a new way of looking at this is to say, no, in fact, this is an entirely appropriate way of being a queen in the 19th century. So you've got all the political establishment cross that she's not turning up to open parliament. Actually, her middle-class subjects don't care about that. And what they are getting from her is a sense of reassuring continuity. Because even though she's at Windsor and not seeing anybody, even if she goes out for a ride in her pony carriage in the park, if that's the total extent of what she does that day, it still gets reported in the Times Mm. and people still read about it. And occasionally she would do things like publish extracts of her journals, which describe really boring things like pony rides again. But people <laughs> people love this. They laugh it up. It makes it seem very relatable. And uh, that's, that's a way of ruling too, just by existing and being seen by the media. And it's a way of ruling that doesn't sound that unfamiliar to us because how often do we hear the voice 
of our queen. We don't hear it very often, do we? No. But no. we know what she's doing. We know what she looks like. We know that she's always doing pretty much the same thing in a selection of almost the same coat and, <laughs> and hat. Yeah. Uh, but we know that she's there doing her queening. And that's what matters rather than opening parliament. So what changed that kind of feeling towards her? Was it just Bertie, her, the, the, the son? Was it, was it just his illness? Yes, there was this big turning point in her relationship with her eldest son that had been very fraught. Very difficult, not least because she she believed that his bad behaviour had, had, had contributed to Albert's death. But in a sort of horrible, curious coincidence, 10 years after Albert died, Bertie too became terribly sick. And because he was so sick, near to death, they seemed to have some sort of a reconciliation at that point. And uh, the world could read this. The world could see that it was happening. And they were pleased that the royal family appeared to be more united than previously. And is that the point that she started making more public appearances and sort of coming out of that period of, of intense mourning? It is true, yes. And there was famously a, uh, a celebration at St Paul's Cathedral where they both appeared to give thanks for his recovery. But I, I still want to downplay the importance of these mm. public appearances. They, they, weren't, they weren't absolutely essential. One of the ways in which she really made an impact was through writing simple little articles in things like household words or particularly these massively popular published selections from her journals. And I sort of think that had she been alive today, she would have been quite good at being the editor of the women's page, for example, in a really <laughs> yes. successful middle market newspaper. Yeah. She had that sense of what would appeal to her very middle of the road, respectable, ordinary subjects. Yeah. Do you think widowhood suited her to, to an extent? <laughs> well, I think that widowhood suited many Victorian women mm. to an extent because it was the time in your life when for the first time you were free of the power of your father and then of your husband. It, it was liberating. And I love the idea that there are all these Victorian widows dressed in black, sort of hiding in plain sight what new freedoms they were experiencing personally. Yeah. And it seems weird to us that they did this devotion to the black. But I can also see a lot of advantages in it. Um, firstly, you didn't have to dress for fashion anymore. You could dress totally for comfort. Um, secondly, it signalled to everybody that you were bereaved and therefore deserved special consideration. Today, when someone's bereaved, we don't know, do we? They're expected to act normally, to try to get over it, to come back to normal life. And it's sort of healthier in a way to show it so that it can be recognised and they can be treated accordingly. And also in Victoria's case, the black wearing, it was the most fantastic visual branding. Mm, Everybody yeah. knew exactly what the Queen looked like because she always looked the same. Yeah, and that's, how, that's what you think of when you imagine her is, is that older Queen, mm, isn't it? Mm. The downside of that is that in the 21st century, we think that bereavement and mourning are weird and wrong. Mm. And therefore, we think that that was her lifelong state. She must have been unhappy the whole time. You know, there's a certain amount of truth in that. Because <laughs> her mother died, actually, didn't she? Quite. Albert died Albert? in the same year mm. that Albert did. And so right. that was a year of, of calamity and horror. And um, I think that at that point, she realised how nasty she'd been to her mother. I and mean, she'd already started to realise it, but that really brought it home so she, to her. So she did grieve her. She did, she realised that she did mourn her then. Totally, yeah. sincerely, um, completely. And it, there's also a sort of point that I feel I should make about the Kensington system. A lot of our evidence for how traumatic her childhood had been comes from 
Victoria herself, who has does have a tendency to, to self-dramatise. She's quite a melodramatic sort of character, really. And a lot of her recollections start to be written down by her in this period when she's in mourning for her mother and she's feeling pretty sorry for herself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, was it as bad as, as she makes out, do you think? I cannot honestly tell you that. No. Um, it's something that we talk about a lot here, not least because we're working on a new exhibition for next year that'll be about her childhood and the rooms immediately below us, which she occupied then. And uh, we want to be true to the evidence, but we also want to be true to her. The story she told her about her own life, which did include this dark, depressing, difficult, contested, sinister childhood. It's also a great story. Yeah. I'm very happy for people to learn that story, then to start to question it for themselves and to be sucked into the history machine and perhaps try <laughs> to find out the truth. Yeah. Um, she did enjoy close friendships um, after Albert's death with, with men, didn't she? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You seem to prefer... From looking at her life, it seems to be she had these intense relationships, but with men rather than women, such yes. as, you know, John Brown, Abdul Karim. Yes. Um, well, I don't think she ever felt she could afford to have female friends. Right. I think she felt that that was dangerous. They might betray her secrets. And so she was actually very comfortable with people of the servant status in her life um, who would be dependable, uh, weren't necessarily going to write scandalous letters to the aristocracy revealing the secrets of the palace. And I think part of the reason such emphasis is placed on relationships that she had with two male servants later on in life, John Brown, her Highland servant, then Abdul Karim, her Indian servant. Part of the reason that a lot of obsession takes place about these relationships is because of the Victorian medical understanding of what would happen to a woman going through the menopause. And if you read the medical manuals, it is hinted that she will become a sex maniac. It's, it's just going to happen. There's no escape from it. So that's why we, people are so purely interested on, in whether she did or didn't do it with John Brown, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, was she, do you think she was looking to replace that relationship that she had with Albert, that intense, uh, with these men? Or was it just that companionship or, you know... They're quite, they were quite different to Albert. They seem to be very different characters. They were. Um, I think that John Brown in particular had an important role in her life, which was to provide her with physical touch. So it's very lonely for any widow. Um, if you're the queen, who dares to touch you? It's kind of a sort of double whammy of, of loneliness. Um, but we can see that he would take her arm when she was walking help her into her carriage, help her up onto her horse, be there, be dependable. And uh, Albert used to call her his good little wife. Brown never did that. He didn't inf infantilise her. And it looks like they, they had something more of the sort of partnership that you might expect to find in a marriage. And clearly it was an emotional support. But personally, I don't believe that they were swinging from the chandeliers. 
Which is your 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 favourite Victoria? Is it kind of young Victoria? Is it Victoria as as sort of the new queen and wife, or is it kind of the widow Victoria? Who who do you kind of who did you kind of warm to the most? Old Victoria. I like old Victoria. We don't hear or see enough about old women in society, in the world, in life, and I think that she deserves to be celebrated, not necessarily because she was a perfect person. And in fact, she could sometimes be monstrous, particularly to her children. But she does deserve respect for living what I think was a lonely life Mm. and uh, sitting on that throne for so long and not falling off it. In her own terms, in the terms of the monarchy, she did a pretty good job. Um, Okay, so next year is a big year um, here. It's the 200th anniversary of Victoria's um, birth. What's going to be happening to to sort of commemorate that? Ooh, we're getting (laughs) getting it all ready just now. Um, On the 24th of May, 2019, which will be 200 years since she was born in a room downstairs, Mm -hmm. just a a staircase away away from where we're sitting, we're going to be opening two different exhibitions about her. One is a representation of the rooms where she lived here. So she lived here until she was 18. It'll cover her early life and that'll be there forever. Then we're also having a special temporary exhibition for next year, which will cover the rest of her life until she died. So in that one, we're looking at her as a wife, as an active queen, as a widow, as a grandmother, as the grandmother of Europe, in a sense, because of who her children and grandchildren married, and as an empress. And this is very interesting. We're getting into all sorts of issues about empire. Good thing or bad thing? Discuss. We're trying to make sure that we're being balanced there. I suppose one thing we haven't discussed is her death. Um, you know, did she, in the lead up um, to her death, you know, did she kind of, was she retiring from, from public life or did she kind of keep going right into the to the very end? Was she still quite active? Ah, she, she was never active in these widow, <laughs> in these widow no. years. She did make um, very limited public appearances. And towards the very end, she lost her sight and her mobility. And she ended up at her house on the Isle of Wight, Osborne, which is where she died. And there's, there's rather a touching statement from this late period by one of her ladies-in-waiting who says that sometimes now I forget that the Queen is the Queen and I only see a sorrowing woman who longs for human contact. And in that statement, I think I can see the secret of her success, which is that she appeared to be ordinary and unthreatening and just like your own widowed grandmother. Yeah, and at every stage of her life, she appears to be, you know, even as a child, you know, she was seen as that. And then going through as uh, in modern terms she was relatable yes (laughs) (laughs) so we asked our twitter followers if they had any questions for you today so i've got a few here so perhaps have a go at these so okay so kaz cook wanted to know did queen victoria order her doctors to give her chloroform in childbirth for her seventh or eighth child and how does she hear about it as a pain relief method for childbirth well It is true that she used chloroform. I'm not sure if it was her idea or how she came to hear about it, but she appointed John Snow, the doctor, and he had become known for his pioneering use of this drug. Mm. Um, And it's very interesting because there was resistance from her, her medical team that she'd been using so far. They felt it would make things take longer. And our research onto her costumes does suggest that the birth of Leopold, number seven, did cause her some kind of physical trauma. She seems to have recovered from it more slowly. So chloroform, a good thing or bad? Discuss. (laughs) Um, Ian Anderson wanted to know, what role did Victoria play in foreign military affairs for the British Empire during her rule? (laughs) 
<laughs> a whole podcast yes, worth there. Yes, yes, yes. Well, she, 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 the one part of her job that would get her excited was foreign affairs. Um, she wasn't really, she was very socially conservative. She, she wasn't particularly interested in social conditions or anything like that. Um, she didn't even get democracy that well. She once said she couldn't see why a government ought to fall simply on account of the number of votes. <laughs> but she, what she loved doing was getting involved in wars. And sometimes she would act completely unconstitutionally. So, for example, if she felt that the Tsar ought to be more aggressive, if Russia ought to be more aggressive, she'd just write to him. And she could do that because they had been dancing partners in ballrooms of their youth. And she's not supposed to do that. She's supposed to use the Foreign Office. <laughs> <laughs> um Kansas uh, Salem wanted to know more about her preferences. It's well known that she loved sweets and was cold a lot. Um, but these small facts are so so uh, important. Um, she'd love to know how she sort of got through her day and sort of her likes and dislikes. <laughs> the business of her liking the cold. This goes back to the influence of her long-standing doctor, um, Dr. Clark. And the reason that he was so... Um, important to her is that he helped her when she was caught in the trauma of the Kensington system. There was one famous occasion when she was very ill. Conroy was in denial about this and wouldn't let her see a doctor. But eventually Clark was, was let in and he gave her this massive psychological boost and she always trusted him from that point. Now, Clark had a particular interest in... Um, diseases of the chest and of the breathing. He was known for introducing the stethoscope into medical practice, for example. And he believed it was very important that everyone ought to get lots of fresh air. It's not actually a thing medically. Diseases called by, by bacteria, not by bad air. <laughs> but he believed in bad air and he passed on this belief to her. And so she made everybody around her suffer in <laughs> Arctic conditions for the rest of her life with all the windows open. Yeah, that's probably why she likes Scotland. Yes, it is, partly, yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, David John wanted to know whether she had any nicknames. Did she have any nicknames? Well, uh, her mother used to call her Wickelchen, which, uh, a German-speaking mother, I understand that it means little Vicky, yeah. which is really cute. And it also helps to counteract this view that some people have that she was called Drina consistently throughout her childhood. Victoria, which is her first name, Drina was her second name. It seems that Victoria or Vicky were, were important names by which she was known from the start. And that's why she chose it as her, her, her name as Queen? She didn't Partly. I mean, that, that choice to become Victoria's Queen is sometimes presented as another turning point away from the system. If you assume that she was always called Drina during her childhood here at Kensington Palace, it's, it's not the case. There's a bit more continuity there than it seems. What she is called is just a nexus as well for all these different powers that play over her in her early life. Because is she going to have a German name or an English mm. name? Is she going to have a royal name or a non-royal name? All these things are discussed. Um, there was, sorry, there was one more. Um, David Dowdle wanted to know how much of the responsibility of the Irish famine can be placed with her. <sighs> Big question. Yes. Well, in Ireland, she was known as the Famine Queen because of what I truly believe to have been her government's shameful pitiful, inadequate response to Ireland. And this is a big black mark against her, I think, her lack of interest, lack of attention to Ireland. But in a way, there's quite a satisfying argument that Ireland got its revenge on her. That sounds far-fetched, but bear with me here. And it's to do with Albert's death. What caused Albert's death? Albert's death was caused partly by his uh, stress caused by... Uh, Bertie, his eldest son, losing his virginity. The traditional story goes that he lost his virginity to 
a London actress who was imported into Ireland specially for the purpose. But Irish family historians have recently found another candidate for the role of the deflowerer of the Prince of Wales, who was possibly an Irish girl called Ellen Clifton, born in County Waterford, would have been the right age to do it, possibly um, was orphaned by the famine and had turned to sex work as a result. Now, isn't that an intriguing thought that a, a woman who was the victim of the famine caused the death of Albert? That was Lucy Worsley. Queen Victoria, daughter, wife, mother, widow, is out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. In the US, it's due to be published by St Martin's Press in January, with the alternate title, Queen Victoria, 24 Days That Changed Her Life. And Kensington Palace will be marking next year's bicentenary with a major exhibition about Victoria opening in May. Visit hrp.org.uk to find out more. Meanwhile, Lucy Worsley is one of the speakers appearing at our History Weekend event in Winchester next week. For more details of this and our companion event in York later in October, please visit historyweekend.com. OK, well that's about it for today, but please do come back on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 